welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 23 of Sleep Talk and welcome Moira. Hi Dave, hello. So the theme for this month is we're going to talk about sleeping children with special needs and disorders such as autism and severe developmental disabilities. It seems like an uncommon thing at first blush or a bit of a niche sort of topic, but it turns out if you look at children, the prevalence of autism disorders in children is around two in a hundred kids and neurological problems or severe developmental disabilities is actually quite common as well. Uh, and it is a for people who have kids with developmental disabilities, it can be a significant problem and impact on the whole family. And did you get asked by someone to do an episode on this or you just, you know, some review, some reviewer or someone gave you feedback or you just thought that would be a good one to do? Well, you, you know it is an area of personal interest. Yes, for, that's what I was <laughs> wondering. Yeah. So I am biased and that's one of the uh, benefits of mm. running a podcast series is <laughs> I, I get to some extent to choose the topics. And so I, th I do want to develop resources in this because yes. you know, a lot of people I have contact with are families of kids with severe developmental disabilities. Oh, yes, huge. So to be able to develop some resources and coincidentally, when I travel to India soon, you know, got the opportunity to talk uh, mm. to parents of kids with severe developmental disabilities in India, which will be a you know, great opportunity to, to talk to that group. So what's happened in the last month, Moira? Anything come up for you around sleep? I know that famous neurophysiologist passed away recently. That's been in the news. You're much better at pronouncing his name than me. I'm Dr. Quite, Juvet. My, yeah, Dr. <laughs> Juvet. My French is Juvet, terrible. Yeah. So he, was, he discovered the region of the brain that controls REM, and that's been an enormous contribution, hasn't it, to our, to our field yeah, over absolutely. many decades. So a lot of the work he was doing in the late 1950s, mapping out brain regions, he worked particularly with uh, young cats, kittens, but mapping out brain regions involved in uh, REM sleep really helped define that state of sleep and built mm -hmm. on some of the observational work that was done in the US and he really backed it up with neurophysiological recordings. I suppose, and the other thing that's happened recently is the daylight savings change that we've all put our clocks forward in Australia for our spring. I must admit I didn't really notice much difference this time around at all. Did, did you? Have you heard Clinically, have people been struggling? Have you been hearing much about it? Yeah, predictably. <laughs> had had some yeah. phone calls and have some people yeah. who'd felt that their sleep's been really put out. Mm. Uh, and often it, it is that, you know, the the threat or that um, fear of a threat to sleep. Mm. And it's, oh, no, I'm just hanging in there with my sleep and now someone's made me shift an hour. Yes. And that's the bit that all of a sudden the thing, the pattern yeah. I had is gotten thrown out i mean for the general person it does you just do it you do adapt in about three days a few days i i feel yeah do you think well physiologically you know mm. we know human beings we can travel an hour to the yeah. east per 24 hours without thinking about it or yeah. two hours to the west per 24 hours yeah. on average so yeah. a one hour change really should be neither yeah here nor there mm. unless we're in that sort of mindset of being too careful and mm. too cautious yeah. Uh, yeah. about sleep what about what else has been happening? Well, so the World Sleep Congress was on mm. earlier this month mm. in Prague. And from all accounts, unfortunately, I didn't get to go. It was a really successful meeting. I've had great reports about the content oh, and some really great shame. lectures. would have loved to have gone. I know. Yeah. Great city, great conference. Yes. And it's exciting. One of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Hamanchu Garg, who uh, works in India, who I'll be visiting uh, very shortly, got recognised for his activities for World Sleep Day with a uh, Distinguished Activity Award and an Honourable Mention. Oh, so that was really right, lovely. a real thrill. 
Yeah. And he sort of he didn't he didn't he learn from you? Like, like he, I know he spent a bit of time in Australia a number yeah. of years ago. So absolutely, Amanda worked with me for mm. two years, mm. and. I, you know what it's like when you mentor people. It's a two-way street. I yeah. certainly learn a lot from yes. Hamanchu, and yeah. I think he learned a lot from me. So yeah. it was a nice mutual relationship. Congratulations, Hamanchu, yeah. <laughs> if you're listening. And you're getting ready for the Sleep Down Under conference. Yes, yes, yeah, that's coming up very soon. Got your talks organised? <laughs> yes, I have this time. Very organised. Yeah, I'm excited for that. I think there's an extra layer of. Excitement when you're going overseas. It's in Auckland, even though it's, I mean, Australia, New Zealand, it's so close. It doesn't feel like going overseas. But I have to remember your passport and yeah. <laughs> make sure it's up to date. Yeah, so we'll report back briefly, I guess, next podcast, just yeah, a few of the cur- highlights around that. Yeah, I'm certainly looking forward to hearing some of the highlights. So, mm. unfortunately, I won't be able to go, but I'll be going to a different meeting, the Southeast Asian Academy of Sleep Medicine's third international conference, which is on in uh, Punjab in the northwest of India. Exact so, so, same, exact same dates. Exact, it's a shame. I know. Uh, Hamanchu's convening the conference and I, <laughs> I did try and tell him, hey, it's the yeah. same time. You, you couldn't do it any other time. Yeah. But, Next but, time try and um. <laughs> Yeah, well, weather, apparently weather-wise in India, there's a limited window where conferences yeah. really okay. work because um, in the summer it's really hot well, and no one wants to travel I too much. I must admit it is later. For, uh, usually we're a little bit earlier in October, don't you think, mm-hmm. sometimes? Yeah. It's usually maybe mid-October or so for the ASA. Anyway, make sure that doesn't happen again. So as we talked about in the introduction, the theme for this month's podcast is sleep in special needs children and particularly those with autism and severe developmental disabilities. Uh, it is a topic that's close to my own heart because of my personal experience as a parent of a son with a severe developmental disability. Fortunately, Will sleeps pretty well, but as a family, his illness has had an impact uh, on us. He's had periods of months in hospital, which creates its challenges for sleep for everyone in the family. So it does bring up these issues. And a lot of our uh, friends that we've met through other kids who've got severe developmental disabilities or kids with autism really has brought home to me that uh, sleep is an issue in kids. And if it is an issue, it can be an impact or can have major impacts for everybody. Yeah, because it's been, it is a significant issue in Australia and, and worldwide. What's the status of the research in this area with you know those particular kids with special needs, their families and, and their sleep? Well, thankfully, one of the guests we're actually going to talk to, Professor Amanda Richdahl from La Trobe University, has done a lot of work and her research group done a lot of work, particularly in uh, kids and also adults with autism, but also has written some reviews on sleep in uh, kids with special needs or developmental disabilities. So they, kids who have chronic health problems do have a much greater rate of sleep problems than normally developing children. So it's estimated that between 20 and 30% of normal normally developing children have problems with sleep. But a nice Australian paper recently, and Harriet Hiscock was one of the authors on that, showed that children with special health care needs, it's a little different from severe developmental disabilities, think mm-hmm. of that as sort of encompassing all chronic health conditions, mm-hmm. were somewhere between two and four times more likely to have sleep problems than their normally developing peers. That's enormous, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Because if your baseline is a 20 to 30% chance mm-hmm. of sleep problems and then you double that or you know, increase that markedly, it means they're really common. Mm-hmm. It's great to know the, the state of play and then the, the big thing is how to handle it. Like what, what are the solutions? What are the best techniques? What can be done about it? So to get an idea about that, I had the opportunity to talk to Associate Professor Margot Davey. Margot's a paediatric sleep specialist and director of the Monash Children's Sleep Centre. Thanks a lot, Margot, for helping us out. 
pleasure. So what sort of sleep problems can occur in children with severe developmental disabilities? I think these children can suffer from a range of sleep issues. Uh, There can be issues with settling to sleep and maintaining sleep and parents having to be very involved with that routine overnight. There are children who can have impaired quality of sleep because of breathing issues or seizures or other medical conditions that can interfere with their sleep. And then with children who, for example, have visual defects, we can actually see problems with their rhythm of sleep uh, and their night-day differentiation. So children with significant developmental disabilities really can have a lot of sleep problems. And how does that differ in terms of the prevalence compared to normally developing kids? I think uh, looking at the prevalence of sleep problems in typically developing children, we'd see about 20 to 30% of families or parents would say that their child has a sleep problem. When you look at the group with developmental disabilities, it jumps up dramatically. Mm-hmm. You know, some studies say 40%, some say 80%. I think it's really very prevalent and very very common. So why is that difference? What, what is it about kids with severe developmental disabilities that gives that incidence of sleep problems? Partly it could be that parents accept their child's sleep problem as part of their disability mm-hmm. and therefore some strategies that we would use for typically developing children like improving independence at falling asleep during the night, they don't feel as relevant to their child. Secondly, they do have a lot more medical problems interfering with their sleep. So they could have breathing problems, they could have reflux, they could have difficulties with saliva control, they can have pain from contractures or spasms. So there's a whole lot of medical issues as well that will be affecting their sleep. Some of these children may have epilepsy and that can also lead to sleep fragmentation and if epilepsy isn't well controlled can lead to poor quality sleep and frequent wakings. So I think there are many, many reasons why. Yeah, certainly as a parent of someone with or a child with a developmental disability, you know, we know we can be frazzled and, you know, feel like, you know, get the kids into bed and our our day's done. Mm. So can parenting have a role on sleep problems in kids? Look, I, I think it's it's parenting and children in general. It's very much a symbiotic relationship sure. and uh, you can do one particular sleep pattern for one child and they sleep through and it's not an issue and then with another child they can wake up frequently and have lots of struggles. So I think the personality and temperament of the child needs to come into it yeah, sure. rather than saying just the parenting uh, style. I also think it's very hard when you're very worried about your child for whatever reason mm-hmm. and you have to be super vigilant for medical problems and I think that also makes it very difficult and also sometimes then sets up situations where children become very reliant on the parents to fall asleep and parents sometimes then are at a loss at how to tackle and change that. Yeah it's a nice segue to then talk about what parents can do. So what are some strategies that can help? I think some of the strategies can help, as you said, oh, phew, I want to put the children to bed. (laughs) I want this day dusted. I think looking at the time from going to bed and actually falling asleep is really important. Uh, And particularly as children age, you know, teens do tend to have a change in their circadian rhythm. They are able to start a little bit later. And so I think if there's a, a big difference between lights off and when a child falls asleep of any age, that doesn't promote a good sleep pattern. And so I think looking at that difference and maybe making the bedtime routine a bit later so that the child physiologically is actually able to fall asleep, I think those things can help. 
The other thing is often parents will say, I don't have any problems getting my child to bed and they have a very complicated ritual and they're happy doing that at 8.30 at night but then they're not so happy at 1 o'clock, 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock. So I think looking at how involved the parent is in helping their child fall asleep and seeing if there are ways that you can change that. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap with what we do in adults. You know, as adults, you know, compensatory strategies we see with insomnia is you're not sleeping well, go to bed earlier. Yes. Create more opportunity. Yes. So then as an adult, as a parent, it's logical then you'll do that same thing to your child. Yes. Put them in bed earlier. So helpful to try and avoid that. Yes, yes. I I think also with some kids who have... um, uh, worries or are anxious and particularly children who can't communicate those needs as well, putting a child to bed too early allows a lot of opportunity to sort of mull over things or make those things worse and sometimes delay sleep onset even further. Yeah, and sometimes there can be difficulties with self-soothing. Um, as adults, again, you know, we can have difficulties with self-soothing and that's an important life skill for people to develop yes. to help <laughs> getting off to bed. <laughs> So if there is that only ability to settle with a complex routine or a, a set of circumstances, it can almost become a sort of a heavy burden to carry. Yes, it certainly can. And I think that when you are tired and sleep deprived and, and trying to be the best parent you can, and often in these cases looking after these children, the best sort of caregiver all the time, it's it's hard sometimes to step back and see how you can change it. But I think one of the things is having a look at how many bits to the routine Mm -hmm. there are and trying to work on one in a supportive way and gradually changing it. These patterns are learned and they can be unlearned or replaced by other things. And I think it's allowing a child the opportunity to learn some different skills to help develop some self-soothing and settling overnight. Yeah, it is a tricky balance. It's nice to have that sort of self-soothing routine. You know, we have our thing, I read a book, I start to fall asleep, I turn the light out. Mm. You know, that's my sort of settlings. But it's a balance of something short that's transportable and not something that's too complex and hard to reproduce. Correct. So body clock problems you talked about a bit earlier. So what are some things that can impact on the body clock and things parents can do to get better sleep and enhance that? I I think one of the other things that's really important is regular routines and schedules. Sometimes there can be tremendous difference between, say, for example, weekdays with parents working and other children in the family uh, and looking at bedtime routines. And sometimes there can be two hours, three hours difference between one night and the other. Mm -hmm. And that's not really very helpful in establishing good sleep patterns. I sometimes describe it to parents, it's like jet lag. You're flying from Melbourne to Perth and Perth to Melbourne and expecting yourself to correct in two days and then you're setting it up again a couple of days later. I think trying to have a predictable routine, looking at wake-up times in the morning and not having too much uh, difference between holidays, weekends and weekdays, and then maximising exposure to light in the morning to try and help reset that rhythm mm-hmm. and making sure that kids are eating in the morning or having something to help signal to the brain this is daytime, not nighttime. So really highlighting those cues that help all of us you know, live during the day and sleep at night. One of the things I haven't mentioned is sometimes children with developmental disabilities can sleep quite a lot during the day. Mm -hmm. Sometimes if they're on a bus to go to school and the bus is 30, 45 minutes there and back, sometimes if they fall asleep in class, sometimes teachers aren't as vigilant and they're allowed to sleep. So I've certainly looked after children where when we've really documented it closely, they might have had up to three hours sleep a day Mm -hmm. and that's obviously going to impact 
uh, up on the amount of sleep at night. So I think that's another thing to think about when you're addressing sleep problems in children. And what about blue light at night? Is it really that important? I think it is important. Uh, Increasingly there's work looking at our body's physiological mechanism and secretion of melatonin, uh, which is a chemical that's produced in our pineal gland that helps us it's the hormone of darkness our sleep cycle is often centered around that one of the things that we've learned over the years is that light and particularly blue light is an incredibly powerful suppressor of that and so i think with the change in our society of having all these devices portable small and take them to our rooms it does have an effect so i think trying to look at how much screen use is happening before you go to sleep before you turn off lights uh, because it can certainly affect some children and some adults and in fact recent work would suggest that teenagers are the most vulnerable age group of our uh, life span so of course they're the ones that often are more addicted to it than others and melatonin's talked about a lot in um, this particular patient group. Yes. What, what's the role of melatonin? Look, I think melatonin has two roles. One, it can be used um, as a sort of hypnotic to help us fall asleep in slightly higher doses, given about half an hour before you go to bed. It also has a very powerful effect on maintaining our circadian rhythm, and that use is often neglected or not really thought about. Most people use it to help you fall asleep, and I think there's a lot of evidence out there that it certainly can help you fall asleep earlier. But when you look at all the studies, the the amount is modest. We're talking sort of 30 to 45 minutes, mm-hmm. um, which certainly in, in some families can make a huge impact. But I think you do need to look at other things such as routines, patterns of falling asleep to get maximum benefit from it. Yeah, in the adult literature, at least, if we're looking at manipulating the circadian rhythm, melatonin seems to be almost the fine print mm. and light and scheduling mm. are the, the keys. Mm. Is it the same in the paediatric literature? I think for certain groups, perhaps it's a bit bolder print. Uh-huh. Um, I think children with autism, there certainly has been a lot of work looking at the physiology of melatonin secretion and the receptor responsiveness to it. And there certainly are some children who do have very significant effects. Uh, so I think there are some medical conditions where there is a physiological basis and melatonin might be more helpful than in other kids but it's not one you know melatonin solves everything and that's often what i see too in adult practice you know people take the melatonin but they're forgetting about light and they've not got a regular routine and a regular schedule and really take a melatonin without doing the other pieces Mm. is you're not going to get the results out of it I think that's true, and as I tell my teens who say, oh, what about this melatonin? And you go, well, you're doing everything possible to suppress it. I think what we need to do is look at harnessing things that we know improve secretion of it, and then we can talk about it. So we talked a bit about some behavioural things. Is there ever a role for medication in sleep in these sort of children with severe developmental disabilities? Look, there is there is a role, but I, I think one of the first things that needs to be done is to make sure that there's nothing medical interfering with the children's sleep. Mm-hmm. I, I think things like breathing problems, the most common cause in, in this group of children would be something called obstructive sleep apnea where there are repeated blockages or obstruction to the airway that can interfere with sleep quality and breathing. And I think it's very important to make sure you're not missing anything that could be interrupting a child's sleep. Similarly, as I mentioned before, some children have significant issues with saliva control, 
pain from spasms or sometimes if they can't move properly, uh, skin irritation. So I, I think before I think about medication to sedate or help a child sleep through, it's really important to make sure I'm not missing anything else that could be contributing to it. Yeah, thanks. So there are some really great strategies. When should someone think about coming to bring their child to see yourself, a paediatric sleep specialist? Look, I think a, a child's sleep problem obviously has significant impact on a child in terms of their ability to learn, concentrate, function, the modulation of their behaviour. There's a whole lot of things. But I, I think we also forget sometimes about the family functioning and how hard it is. And uh, I saw someone last week where, you know, the mum said, we're so tired, you know, dad nearly had a car accident that's when it's really affecting family functioning as well as the child's functioning. I think it's important to be assessed because there may be things medically that are happening that aren't appreciated and there may be other things that we can talk about in terms of routines and schedules that we can improve things. Great. Thanks for your help. Thank you, David. Oh, thanks for that interview with Margot. It's really interesting. Yeah, she's so she's so insightful mm. and just gives such practical sort of ways of thinking about this and practical strategies. That's really interesting, yep. the thinking about who should go and see a specialist or at what point do you do that. A lot of people, I think a lot of people would be struggling on their own and the stats that we know are how high it is, it's probably underestimated because there'd be a whole lot of people that are just too overwhelmed or even too busy or not haven't got the resources to even come and seek professional help. Yeah, true. So whilst Margot was giving us some insights into sleep in children with severe developmental disabilities, another group that's actually very common in the community is children with autism or on the autism spectrum. And, you know, you and I, Moira, in, as working with adults, we see a lot of people on the autism spectrum and sleep mm. problems seem to be overrepresented yes, in definitely. that group. So to get a better understanding about sleep problems in children and adults with autism, I had the chance to talk to Associate Professor Amanda Richtal and Amanda's from La Trobe University in the School of Psychology and Public Health. Thanks very much for helping us out, Amanda, and talking about sleep in kids with autism. What actually is autism? Autism is a neurodevelopmental disorder with probably uh, multiple causes that lead to a final end diagnosis of autism. Uh, spectrum disorder, as it's now called in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders in the fifth edition, which is the Bible that psychologists and psychiatrists in Australia would use. It is typically diagnosed in children, but some people don't get diagnosed until well into adulthood. They're not picked up. That's sometimes people with severe intellectual disabilities, sometimes people who are in other ways very able. It has two core features. One's to do with social communication difficulties and the other one's got to do with repetitive behaviours and interests and sensory sensory interests and sticking to routines, all of those sorts of things. It's a, thought to be a lifelong disorder, though many people do very well. A lot of people also require support throughout their lifetime. It can be associated with intellectual disability, but many people with autism have normal cognitive functioning, so oh. they don't have an intellectual disability. And most or many people with autism will have at least one other co-diagnosis. So often anxiety, depression, often mental health problems, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, sleeping difficulties, gastrointestinal symptoms are among the most common comorbid conditions. Also epilepsy, which yeah. of course can affect sleep 
in children more commonly anxiety and ADHD and yep. sleep problems are a lifespan problem depression tends to develop in older children then through adolescence and into um, adults and yep. gastrointestinal problems are are quite common. Of the sleep problems that you see in kids and adolescents with autism, what type of sleep problems do they get? The most common ones are to do with insomnia symptoms. Mm -hmm. So the most common differentiating issue that we find in, in um, our sleep research is that if we were to take a group of children with autism and take another group of children, the children with autism take a long time to go to sleep. So sleep problems associated with sleep onset latency. They also commonly have shorter shorter total night sleep, poorer sleep efficiency, significant night waking too. But in some ways that can be different. So if you were to look at the absolute frequency of night waking, it might be similar to other children, but there are these children and sometimes adults, particularly with intellectual disability, who may wake up for quite extended periods during the night, get up, disturb the house, engage in disturbing various disturbing behaviours and that these could last you know, for an hour or two. So that's very disturbing for families. And there are also a, another smaller subgroup of children who tend to wake up very early in the morning. So before 5am, um, most children wake up after 6 as a group of early wakes, sun, yeah. sunrise wakers that wake up between 5 and 6. But these are children who may wake up at 3, 4, 4.30 in the morning and they're not going to go back to sleep. And what are some of the factors about autism and kids with autism that might lead to these sleep difficulties? Well, this is one of the things that people are still looking at. Uh -huh. uh, so researchers are looking at genetic potential, genetic causes. They're starting to look at genetic links. They've been looking at sleep from microstructure, which is not particularly my area because I'm essentially a psychologist, yeah. but there have been some some REM, non-REM and uh, sleep microstructures differences reported in literature, but they tend to be small studies with small groups of children and tend not to necessarily be easily re replicable, yeah. but there is certainly some suggestion that there are maybe some differences in, in this in PSG. In terms of behaviours that might be associated with Certainly challenging behaviours are very much associated. So behaviours of third are associated with uh, sleep problems. ADHD behaviours are associated with sleep problems. So attention, hyperactivity or inattention and hyperactivity, anxiety and, and depression. So all the usual suspects that we actually see in uh, typical populations, but we're seeing these problems starting from a very young age. So there was a very interesting longitudinal study out of the UK by Humphreys and colleagues a couple of years ago. And they followed children from infancy, I can't remember exactly, it might have been below 12 months. So they wouldn't have had a diagnosis at that point, but they followed a large group of children through to 11 years of age. And they found that children with autism, their sleep was starting to look different from about age two, two and a half. And the two variables from memory that they looked at were sleep onset latency and total sleep and they were, and they remained different from the non-autistic children in that study right through the age span that they were using. It's, it's something that starts early. In young children, it, it just seems to be associated perhaps with more severe symptoms of autism. Once children get a little bit older, it seems to be quite closely related with anxiety and we, we're very keen on looking at arousal mechanisms because there's evidence that arousal mechanisms might be different in people with autism and certainly in older adolescents and young adults we've found some 
nice relationships with arousal and pre-sleep arousal. And certainly in my work as an adult sleep physician, when I'm working with adults with autism, I'd sort of characterise the difficulties I have as difficulties with self-soothing. So there's something about sometimes the cognitive processes that just don't allow self-soothing. And then in the sleep study stuff, physiologically, there looks like hyperarousal or more of that sympathetic nervous system drive. And I don't know how much yes. of that is inability to self-soothe that drives the hyperarousal or the hyperarousal that makes the self-soothing difficult. And, and it's hard to tease out. That's the big question. But certainly all of our data at the moment and has been for the last few years has been pointing in the direction of arousal mechanisms. And some of the overseas data that's been coming in is also pointing at the issues of arousal mechanisms being involved. And in very young children, you know, some of the issue too seems to be self-soothing. But then it is in very young children anyway. So what's different about the children with autism? Are they predisposed to be more aroused? And that leads to sleep problems. Or though in young children, there's also some suggestion that they're not picking up the environmental cues to set up good sleep routines. They're not understanding what's going on in their environment. They don't like environmental change. They're not attending. They're quite withdrawn inside of themselves, so to speak, with some of the young children. Sleep's almost an interruption to routines. So you talked a bit about arousal mechanisms. You also recently published looking at circadian factors in adults. What did you find with that work? We certainly found, which we isn't reported so much in children, we found a high proportion of the adults had circadian sleep-wake rhythm problems, but there wasn't a lot of evidence for melatonin um, problems, which I had always thought might be a problem, that there there might be something like the melatonin rhythms. And a colleague in the US, um, Beth Mallow, and her colleagues have looked at melatonin in, in children, and in their particular study, they didn't find any troubles either. Other people have earlier on found um, difficult differences in melatonin, but some of that could be accounted for by the way they've approached their uh, design. Uh-huh. And we, cert- we certainly, I won't say we did it perfectly, but we did try and be as rigorous as we could, but it's quite difficult to do that, yeah. that kind of work and to, to get that kind of result. But very much delayed sleep and delayed sleep-wake rhythms but some people with advanced rhythms and a couple who also had significant mental health problems with um, non-24 hour or um, irregular sleep-wake rhythm. Now you see the you see a few children with delayed sleep phase, but we found that 44% of the adults have a circadian rhythm sleep disorder. We're actually hopeful that a paper will be published to show that that's actually potentially associated with one of the things that's associated with unemployment. This may happen. If we think about what happens to adults with autism, they're often um, underemployed or unemployed. Uh-huh. Their life has, it's not regulated, it's not routine. Yeah. So that the tendency for them to, to get out of phase with society, if they're not going out and doing things on a regular basis, they don't have routines, they're not employed and, and so on. Yeah. That requires obviously further investigation as to whether that's the reason, whether it's actually a social reason, because they still have symptoms of insomnia that we see in in the younger children. So they have the symptoms of insomnia, but on top of that, they have these sleep-wake rhythms. A a proportion of them have these sleep-wake rhythms that are now 
somewhat out of phase with society and, and, and that might be just an added social impost. Yeah, I reckon that's hard to tease out because I, I see that in clinical practice as well and how much is difficulty with arousal or not switching off and self-soothing and also not a fixed arising time that's going to naturally make sleep onset later and then a rising time later. So how much is a primary yeah. circadian sort of piece and how much is more social and mediated by arousal? I think that's hard to know. And given that we don't see in the literature reported a high percentage of circadian problems in the younger children, but we see the insomnia type problems, but now in this adult population, we're starting to see the circadian problems tends to lead one to think that there's a social there's a social cause behind the increase in circadian problems. If clinicians are working with either children or adults with autism on sleep problems, how might they modify what they do if they're working with people with autism as against working with others without autism? They need to take into account potential for the person's social and communication difficulties. So with young children, working closely with parents and setting up bedtime routines and using communication systems that the children can understand. So we in the past, with, in research, and Margot may well have talked about this too, we set up a series of little pictures showing what the child had to do and what all the steps were with a little star chart with rewards. Now, mm -hmm. depending on the intellectual level of the child, whether the child's got a significant communication and intellectual disability or not, you, you may modify, again, how you do that. Yeah. So you have to look at the individual child, but you need some really good cues. You need to make sure that your language you use is understandable and that they're not ambiguous. We need to take into account the person's anxieties. So we, we need to take an individual approach that takes into account the specific symptoms of the person themselves with autism. When we work with families, we need to look at what the family's goals are, what would be good for the what the family feels would be goals. So they may not want to cure or, or treat everything yeah. because they've often got a lot to deal with. So they might want to just deal with getting the child to bed and to sleep, sleep quickly so that they've got a quiet and peaceful night and that might be sufficient to provide them with a lot of stress relief. And if the child's going to sleep more quickly, the child is getting more sleep that night. It's an individualised approach that takes into account, in particular, the core features of autism. Thanks very much, Amanda. Okay. So we've heard from both Margot and Amanda about the issues of kids with severe developmental disabilities or autism and the sleep problems they can have and then in turn, how much of an issue that can be for the family. So what about for parents, Moira? If parents are struggling with sleep, what are some things that they could do? Yeah, it's a really good point because a lot of them are struggling even on the nights that their child might be actually sleeping through or, or having a better sleep. I think the parents are often left with this anticipation of the next wake up or they might be, you know, the child might come and present themselves into their room. So they've, the parents end up being very hyper aroused mm -hmm. day and night really just with the struggles of, of it. So I think it's one of the best things or the most important thing is to actually implement as much self-care as possible. I know it's very hard, easier said than done, depending on how much money and time and resources and support these, these families or these parents can get. But I'd really be encouraging people to identify that they do have this anticipatory arousal often and learning how to, to meditate, for instance, learning how to ask for help, you know, delegate, manage their stress in general anyway, and to also learn to, to roll with it too and have an expectation that this is not going to be forever. Mm -hmm. Even though the disability might be forever, the actual 
the, the sleep patterns will change from time to time over different developmental stages. Yeah. A lot of people tearing their hair out with, you know, the, the younger child that by the time they're older, they, you know, there's lots of stories around that, 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 that they eventually do settle a little bit and it gets easier. So I guess, I think, you know, good healthcare team around them, good paediatrician, good other support workers, psychologists maybe, sleep physician maybe, or whatever. You know, it's just knowing that there's support out there. Yeah, that's a good point. So if adults um, are getting sleep problems, and it's not uncommon actually for an adult to develop their own sleep problem mm. because of constant disturbance by their child, yeah, yeah. yeah seek help as yes. an adult as well. So talk to your doctor and yeah. you may need to be referred on to a sleep clinic for assessment and yeah. treatment. and I would caution against longer-term use of sleeping medication, sure. obviously, because that might be uh, one of the first things that gets discussed maybe at the GP level or what someone's pushing the GP to, to give them. But I'd, and maybe short-term or intermittent use of that would be fine, mm-hmm. but it would be a really good idea to to explore other ways of coping and to, to of, of using knowing how to reduce your own levels of stress with other means outside of medication. And it's not all about the sleep either. So often the sleep can just be a symptom. I know there's been periods of time when, you know, both myself and Chris, my wife, you know, we're just completely frazzled. We've got mm. nothing, nothing left in the tank. Mm. And, you know, we, we don't have the wherewithal then to do the behavioural strategies or to, yeah. you know, even look after ourselves. So, it is, you know, it's important to make sure people do take time out for self-care, have some respite, yes. um, which is often tough if there's not family members around yeah. or another partner to share the load with. Because respite's um, it's all well and good. I think it's not – sometimes it's not reliable or sometimes it's, it's, uh-huh. you'd be able to uh-huh. <laughs> attest to that. And it might be hard. I mean – it's it's hard at all levels leaving your child with someone if you might not I don't know if they might not have the faith in them or you just it's hard to let go absolutely and but it's really important to do so if there's the right amount of support there and you know I'm in the fortunate position of you know having a great partner and being able to tag team in, mm. in that respect mm. so recognizing you know we each need our space and time out to be able to yeah. You know, look after ourselves to in turn look after our kids. Mm. But as I said earlier, it's really hard sometimes just even financially or just having the time to commit to going to see these various health professionals or go to a yoga class or go to things. So sometimes it just gets really hard. Absolutely. And if the kid, you know, if the child was unsettled or a bit sick, it's, it just gets even harder. So I think it just comes down to yeah, self-care, support, maybe just self-awareness too, knowing knowing your own limits, knowing when you are maybe on the edge mm-hmm. and getting support sooner rather than later. Great. Thanks for those tips, Moira. So if people are looking for more information on sleeping special needs kids and kids with autism or severe developmental disabilities, there's a couple of really great resources. I'll put in a link to a talk that Margot Davey gave at a recent Drave and Genetic Epilepsy uh, Conference that was convened by the University of Melbourne and Professor Ingrid Sheffer. And that gives a really good insight into Margot's uh, approach and some really good strategies. Amanda Richdale's contributed to a government site called raisingchildren.net.au, which is a great resource, and it does have a section specifically on autism and sleep in autism that Amanda helped to develop. There's a nice book written by Beth Mailer, who's an expert from the US uh, on paediatric sleep problems and particularly in uh, kids with autism and other developmental disabilities. So a book by Terry Kratz and Beth Malo called Solving Sleep Problems in Children with Autism Spectrum Disorders and that's available via Amazon. So what's what's your clinical tip of the month, Dave? Well, it's partly a clinical tip for health professionals and partly personal experience. But 
the key to kids sleeping well, particularly when they do have developmental disabilities or other health problems, uh, is also parents sleeping well. And it's not just parents actually feeling that they sleep well, but also modelling uh, good sleep behaviour. So regular sleep schedules, time to wind down before bed, you know, an appropriate, not too long, short, you know, self-soothing activity that leads to feeling in a relaxed state and then being able to get off to bed. And if that sort of routine can be modelled by parents, then often the kids will really pick up on that, model that behaviour. Whereas if as parents we have a really frazzled, you know, running around all of a sudden, come on, everyone, let's get into bed. It's almost like that nervous energy gets transmitted yeah, yes. uh, to everyone else in the family and everyone's a bit unsettled and a bit on edge. Good so advice. for clinicians, don't forget the parents. Yeah. And for parents or others listening, yeah, make sure you look after yourself because yes. and model good behaviour because your kids will follow that. Indeed. So what's your pick of the month, Moira? So much is always happening. It's hard to, because we only meet monthly. There's so many things and they're on a weekly basis. We're probably... Uh, early October, the thing that grabbed my attention, I thought it was really exciting, was that for the first time ever in the sleep world, the sleep research world, the, the Nobel Prize for in medicine and physiology was was given to a group of researchers, American, uh, you, you know, USA guys, um, Hall, Rossbash, and Young, for their work on in the in the circadian clock. Like they've actually, you know, described what are all the molecular cogs and wheels inside our biological clock working out what makes us tick. And it's been going on for so many decades, like decades and decades. And it's just wonderful to see that that research and they've, you know, they've isolated, knowing a lot more about the body, our body clock, our circadian rhythm, knowing that what's in, they, they, most of their work was done in the, the fruit fly, mm-hmm. I think. But it obviously has been translatable in, into humans. And so they've, Obviously, uh, my work as a, with clini- with, as a clinician with humans and interested too on a, on a level at the Sleep Health Foundation of health and safety and alertness in, in all sorts of, like in, in the home and in the, on, on, in the air, airways and in, on the roads. I just think it's just really grateful for, for their work and it's so wonderful that they'll, that they'll recognise. So that's been, that's my pick of the month. And I really liked Sally Ferguson's article in the conversation, which I've got a link in, in, in the show notes. And Sally's a, uh, you know, she's a great leader in our field, isn't she? With Absolutely. Circadian Rhythm Research. And she just did a lovely, really nice article. Did you read that? Yeah, it was great. Yeah. It's your pick of the month. Well, because of the passing of Michael Jouvet, mm. excuse the pronunciation. No, it's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I've I, I really got to bring up his book. I really yeah. loved his book called The Paradox of Sleep that was published initially in English in 1999. But just a great sort of treatise that he wrote that was short, digestible, but just beautifully written sort of book about sleep and particularly about dreaming and REM sleep and some of the paradoxes both about sleep and about dreaming. What does he mean by that exactly, the paradox, like that it's not what it seems or that I guess we're dreaming but it's good quality, we're awake on some level? Uh, No, it it was a little bit about that paradox of sort of being awake yet being asleep and being awake in a visual imagery and mental imagery sort of way. Uh, And paradox in the way that the French term for REM sleep was initially, you know, paradoxical sleep and it was called paradoxical sleep. um, Well, I think we've called, yeah, that's been in our vernacular too, hasn't it, in the sleep world? Yeah, more in the um, paediatric literature than in the adult literature. And, you know, I love, he he sits on the fence, I love the way he sits on the fence about talking about the meaning of dreams, you know, is it neurophysiological versus is it that sort of Freudian interpretation? You know, as a neurophysiologist, he was much more towards that. 
that sort of end of the spectrum. Yeah. But that was part of the paradox he alluded to as well is, you know, how do you account for all these different phenomenologies? Mm. Anyway. Good. A tribute to that book. It's still probably reprinted forever. It sounds like a bit of a classic. One yeah. of my faves anyway. Yeah. So things to look out for that are coming up uh, in sleep. So as we've talked about, uh, the Sleep Down Under conference in Auckland in the next week or so, as well as the Southeast Asian Academy of Sleep Medicine's International Sleep Conference in India. Um, I'll be travelling to India uh, for that. So if you want to see some sort of Indian sleep snaps, follow me on Instagram, Dr. David Cunnington, or Facebook, uh, the same handle for some of those things. And look out for our next episode in November. We're going to be talking about sleep and economics. And one of our guests will be Professor David Hillman, who's the main author of the recent access economics report that you were also involved in launching moira yes so. yes so yeah i'm happy to, i'll be interviewing david we'll catch i'll catch him at the auckland conference so yeah i really look forward to hearing that because it's just mm. a fantastic body of work and i think is really mm. important for our field yeah well he's certainly been instrumental in, in pushing that and, and getting some really good quality data that of from which we can have some better solutions as a society around this this issue of an inadequate sleep. And I guess more broadly we'll be talking more about the other uh, sort of health economics of of sleep and other health issues. So that that's good. We, there's no shortage of topics, is there? There's plenty more in our treasure trove to keep bringing up. Yeah. And of course, you know, we, we, we get to choose the topics, but <laughs> yeah. feel free to email us if you want us to, yes. you want to make any suggestions, email us at podcast at sleephub.com.au or contact us via social media or any of the Sleep Hub uh, channels. Leave a review. There's, there's another review. Did you see that? I did not. I better go, <laughs> better go and have a look. There's one from someone called Kate from maybe last year. Because it's been two years now, yeah, isn't it? This is our when we when we reconvene in November. It's been we've been doing this for two years. Yeah, so we need more than a couple of reviews. <laughs> Please, if you're listening, just do. Just Mum, do one. <laughs> Anyone? All right. So thanks for listening. And as Moira said, leave us some reviews. But you can also subscribe to the podcast via any of the podcast apps, or there's a Sleep Talk app in the iOS store that you can use. Thanks, everyone. Right. Thank you. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.